Hello, and welcome to Local Legacies, the show where we go behind the scenes with enterprising individuals who are striving for the best in their business, family, community, and themselves. I'm your host, Tim Lanza, and without further ado, here's this week's guest. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the studio. Uh, Today, I have a guest here that when I first came up with the idea for this show, I thought if one day everything went perfectly, maybe I could get this guy in here to have a conversation with. Very happy to welcome Ned LaFortune, Wachusett Brewing Company. How are you doing today, Ned? Doing great, Tim. It's uh, really um, awesome to be here. And uh, I really appreciate hearing something like that. But that's just like, totally not my style. Usually, I'm like, I'm just a, I'm just a guy who just was lucky enough to be able to put together a company that this community supported. And uh, fortunate to be here right now, able to talk to you about it. Um, really appreciate it. Well, you've done an excellent job of supporting the community throughout the entire time of your existence. So I think that they've chosen to support you back. And that's how we got here. It is. So yeah. why don't we talk a little bit about how you got started wherever, um, wherever you want to jump off from? Yeah, uh, there's, uh, <laughs> it's definitely, it's definitely kind of an interesting story how this all came together. And I think I have to go back as far as my growing up on um, October farm in Westminster. And part of the reason for that is that's where we brewed our first batches of beer. And there's a lot of backstory from growing up there and spending time there. Um, spending time with my father, um, working on the farm was a really unique experience that I don't think that many people can say that they've had. I, uh, can I swear? Of course. (laughs) I shoveled more shit than anyone else in our elementary school. I guarantee it. Except for maybe a couple that own real farms. Um, Ours was a recreational farm. But what we did there um, from when I was, you know, old enough to walk, I spent time with my dad on, you know, when, when I got into elementary school on weekends, all weekend long working with my dad on the farm. And that meant mornings and nights too, but I had to go to school. Um, the only thing I'd do to, to kind of escape the work is on Saturdays, I'd watch Creature Double Feature. It was a black and white show on like Channel 56 in the time. And that would be my only like relaxation or escape from it. But the thing was like, I didn't really need to escape because I loved it. I absolutely loved it. We did. We were installing fences. We were doing firewood. We were harvesting out of a giant garden he had it was a multi 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 acre garden um we did all our own haying we had cows pigs chickens horses sheep always had dogs around barn cats i mean it was it was just a really great place to grow up and a great experience to be in and uh so different than what i see happening right now with um you know generations uh, they're coming coming through now um, my dad wouldn't allow us to have video games there's no such thing i wanted an atari so bad no chance no way could i have an atari I, if i wanted to play atari i had to go to my uncle's house or something and play asteroids and um, so that's what i did and it was fine it was like all right that's enough of that you know get back to the farm and, and do our thing um so growing up there it was the work ethic that he inst- instilled in me, um, and it was it was awesome. It was fun. I, I loved it, and um, I'm fortunate to say that I 
I now own the farm. Um, well, I own a chunk of it. Um, we'll kind of get to that maybe later on, but um, that's kind of a project of mine right now is to figure out how to preserve such an incredible place that they were able to somehow pull together in the 60s, uh, two teachers that didn't didn't really have the money uh, to be able to do that, and they pulled it off. So it's kind of an inspirational story in itself. So that's definitely the foundation I can go on if you wanted me to just keep rolling with that. Well, yeah, um, I'm wondering, you know, clearly your dad was a strong influence on you. How did that relationship and how did he kind of shape who you've become? Well, the thing about my dad was they called him the gentle giant. He was six four. He's a very big guy, but he was the most quiet, soft-spoken man you'll ever meet. Um, <clears throat> the only time he ever raised his voice at me was when I finally told him that I quit my job in engineering was starting Watch Use a Brewing Company. He stood up at the table and said, you are not leaving your job. And I told him, Dad, I already gave my, my resignation. He was so upset. He didn't talk to me for two weeks. But overall, I mean, he was just someone that uh, he was uh, he was definitely very different than me. He was um, in guidance. Uh, he started out uh, as a biology teacher at, at Oakmont Regional when it when it first opened. He got into guidance. He got a, a master's in um, you know education. And was able to move into guidance. He was at Monte Tech when it opened in 1970. So he was at both of those two schools when they both opened uh, in different roles. Um, and he was just a, he was a, a very peaceful, like, leader uh, for students and was extremely helpful to them. And I hear even to, as recently as this weekend, running into uh, either students or, or um, well, yeah, both students, both students of, um, you know, the education side of biology and then um, students that had him as a counselor telling me about how helpful he was to them in helping them make decisions about their lives. So and that's the influence that I had. He told me if I wanted to have good things, I needed to go to go to college, get an education and get a good job. He told me that ever since I was a kid. And that was a strong influence on me. The interesting thing about the difference between my dad and myself is that he didn't take any risks ever. And we've you know, I've kind of talked about that. I talk about it with my wife. Um, and it's like, it's an interesting uh, dichotomy where, you know, he was a leader in a different way. Um, my grandfather was actually uh, a business owner and an entrepreneur and a pilot uh, way back in the 30s. And um, it's kind of interesting because uh, I actually had a passion for it and I've actually pursued that. And I I went out and bought a powered parachute last year and I started flying on my own. And it was one of the craziest things I've ever done in my life. And it's unquestionably the highest risk I've ever taken in my life. And it's so opposite of anything my dad would have ever done. Um, but so is starting the brewery. You know, he would never have taken those risks. Um, so I don't know, they say sometimes it skips a generation. So it's possible that, you know, really Grandpa Cliff was the uh, strong influence in me somehow. Um, because I've been a risk taker my entire life. Well, I think that happens a lot. You know, people look at business as being risky and it's funny, like that's the first time he yelled at you and it was out of love, right? Mm -hmm. He wants to protect you. He wants you to be safe and stable. But, you know, people say like, 
life's risky and no one gets out alive. So while you have the opportunity to pursue a dream, do it with everything you have. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's pretty much how it started and how it's been for coming up on 30 years now with the, with the brewery. It was, it was pure passion. Uh, Kevin Buckler from Ashburnham, Peter Quinn from Worcester, and myself, we met at WPI, and uh, we, we became great friends. Um, they were one year ahead of me at school, and uh, the three of us, just we just clicked right from the beginning, right from when I was a freshman. They were sophomores. They kind of took me in under their wing, showed me, showed me the ways of the school, helped me figure it out. Quinny pretty much saved me from flunking out by basically kicking me in the ass, telling me, go take that physics two exam. You're going to pass it. I was like, I don't know. I don't know the material. I don't think I can. I, I owe a lot to, uh, to those guys. They definitely were a big influence on me. They helped me stay in school, and uh, like my dad told me I needed to, and um, and be able to actually you know graduate. Um, but yeah, the, we uh, that that relationship was uh, was a very very strong friendship, and it was based on us adventuring. Um, that was another thing that came from both of my parents, and I have to bring my mom into the equation here as well, if I may. Um, she. She's a Montana cowgirl, and of all things, you know how how could this possibly end up? The guy here grew up in Central Mass in Gardner, and my father, my mom's from uh, Laurel, Montana. She took enough. She took a risk by saying yes to him in uh, the early '60s when he proposed to her to bring her back from Montana, and she said to him, "The one thing I ask is that if we have children, that." they get to come to Montana every summer. So I can say that I was fortunate enough to be able to spend my summers in Montana. When I wasn't doing haying with my dad, I was out there in Montana with uh, my sisters and my mom, and my dad would come out as well. And I, I think that um, I got to credit my mom as being the one who is the one who was the risk taker as well and, um, and adventurous. Uh, she was adventurous enough to, to, to to come all the way to Mass. She didn't really want to, <laughs> but uh, she did that out of love as well, obviously. And um, that's something that I think got instilled in me, and that was something that clicked with Kevin and Quinny. It was like we left WPI every single weekend and went to New Hampshire, Maine, and Vermont. Way back from when I was a junior, they were seniors. We were never there because we just liked to go on adventures, and it always involved beer. We would stop at this package store in, in Templeton, Mass, called Gleason's. Gleason's, uh, the, the package store, was uh, known as the Beer Specialist. And Wayne Ron, who, uh, who owned it with his father, Wally, who we actually have a beer named after, um, he, he was always there, and he had the coolest beer selection on earth. There was all these unique beers that we'd never even heard of, these styles like barley wine, porter. I mean, of course, everyone heard of stout, but so many different things, you know, German beers that we were able to try. So we'd stop at Gleason's on our way to New Hampshire or Vermont. We didn't get to go there on the way to Maine because I was a different direction. But anyway, Wayne ended up coming on board at Watch Houston, and he's still with us for coming up on, I'd say, 25 years. 
so I don't know, just uh, kind of some of the early stories. And, uh, you know, I think that's the foundation of how we were able to do what we did. Um, having the influences of work ethic, uh, trust in the friendship, knowledge of my my friends' capabilities, and then the adventuresome and, you know, that, that, that whole aspect of life just allowed us it was just enough of a combination to be able to dive over the edge and 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 go for it and then you take that mixture all together and add in a strong passion for beer and that kind of drives you to where you are now yeah there's there's no doubt about it passion was what kept us going in the beginning when everybody doubted us you know i just realized um and, you know, this is another great thing, and I really appreciate being, um, being able to be brought in on the show because it's allowed me to reflect on, uh, you know, almost 30 years now of of the history of the company and how we get started and just even what was going on at the time. And I just realized today the reality is that – so Wachusett was the first brewery to open in Worcester County since the last brewery closed in Worcester in the 60s. And that was the brewery that brewed uh, Tadcaster Ale. I can't remember the name. I don't think that was the name of the brewery, but um, I know exactly where it is in Worcester. And then I started thinking about it. The The other local brewery that was really big um, that a lot of people refer to was um, the Carling Black Label Brewery. Um, this is going back to, to you know, early early in the century, in, you know, 1900s. Um, but that wasn't in Worcester County. So I don't know that there was really any brewery in Worcester County outside of the city of Worcester until Wachusa came along. So I just kind of realized today as like we were the first like small town brewery of the county ever. I, I don't know the facts, but I'm going to figure that out because I want to know because I'd like to be able to say that because now, you know, we obviously have breweries in, in practically almost every town, certainly every city, um, you know, and, and justifiably so. It's, it's, it's a great, great thing for the community. Um, so, but, you know, that's, uh, it's just cool to kind of look back and, and be able to realize what we did was, was very unique. And that's why people doubted. They were like, why would you open a brewery in Westminster? It's, there's not enough people. Well, it's not, what, that wasn't the point. The point was we were going to make it there put it in um, kegs and bottles, you know, eventually, and then bring it to bring it to the people. And so that's the motto we started out with. So how did you guys get actually started brewing? We started because, um, so Kev Quinney and I were in Maine on a trip. We were up in uh, uh, the, uh, up in Baxter State Park, and we had hiked up Katahdin, and I found out that my the engineering company I was working for at the time in Cambridge was looking for me, and they were calling. They called the Westminster. I mean, there's like no cell phones back then. <laughs> they called my mom, and she's like, um, "The only way you're going to find Ned is if someone gets in a helicopter and flies up to Maine because we don't even know where he is." So, but they wanted me to go to transfer out to Colorado, and it was like something I really, really wanted to do. And so when I finally got back, I was like, oh, my God, I hope it's not too late. Get to the point, 
got to Colorado and just saw the beer scene out there and was blown away. I was like, these, I had always had an intention and an ambition to homebrew, um, but never done it until I got there and started really drinking really local beer. Um, Breckenridge. I lived just outside of Breckenridge when I was uh, transferred out there. And so while I was living in uh, this little town of Leadville, which is 10,000 plus feet up in the mountains, um, I found out that Kevin back living in Connecticut, working for Electric Boat, bought a homebrew kit. And I was like, I went right out to the local store and bought one too, because I didn't want him to make better beer than me. So that's how it really, really got started was I knew he was going to be brewing, so I wanted to be brewing as well. So we brewed separately for um, only about a year. And then when I came back, we got together and decided, well, all right, we're not going to try to outbrew each other. Let's try to make something good together. And Quinny was still in a band at the time. He, he you know, he's a Worcester guy. Uh, he had a great band back uh, when we were in college. And he's like, I'm not going to get involved in this because I know it's going to take over my life. <laughs> it was a classic Quinny statement. Um, but that's the absolute origins. And then we did brew our first batch of beer together in the Black Shack on October Farm here in Westminster, um, the farm that, that we live on right now. And so how long were you out in Colorado? I was only in Colorado for a year. And then did, was your return based on making the decision to brew or how did that come about? My return was actually more based on the fact that there's not enough water in Colorado for me. There's plenty of rivers and everything, but I am I grew up on lakes and uh and you know, obviously near the ocean. And to me, that was the one thing that as much as as incredible as the snowboarding was, and I, I got the most snowboarding days of my entire life that one year, I just uh I didn't want to be away from water. Um, I've become kind of almost obsessed with water over a course of my life. And so that was, that was a primary reason we hadn't decided to, to do the brewery by any means. Um, I was, I had myself transferred back within the engineering company and then it was us brewing together that, that caused the, uh, you know, the, that was the catalyst for us to say, we we might be able to turn the corner on this. You know, between two engineers and a biologist, Quinny is a biologist, Kevin was a mechanical engineer, brilliant, brilliant mechanical engineer. I, I was just like the guy who just kind of was the facilitator. <laughs> I'm like, I have a degree in civil. Um, but that actually worked out well because I had some very serious experience working with the federal government and knowing regulations and ha then having to negotiate through the um, back then the Bureau of Al Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms was helpful. So, um, yeah, between the three of us, I started looking at it and I thought, we might be able to do this. And Kevin thought, yeah, we might be able to do this. Cooney was like, there's no way we're going to be able to do this. <laughs> there's no way. He didn't have an entrepreneurial bone in his body. It took me about two weeks to finally convince Kevin that we really should start writing a business plan. Or actually, we started writing it, and then it took us six months to convince Quinny that this was actually going to be something we're going to try to make a living at. And we did it. <laughs> so 
What were those early days like day to day? Your work, you guys are all working during the day and then you get together at night. Yep. Yeah, we we had we had full time jobs. Kev left uh, Electric Boat. He just decided he didn't want to be he didn't want to be building nuclear subs for uh, for his career. He actually left and decided he wanted to go build log cabins out in Idaho. And I had to convince him to not do that to try to start the brewery. Uh, so he was just doing stuff to get by until he could get to Idaho, which included uh, he was sub substitute teaching and doing other things um, to kind of just, you know, make ends meet temporarily. And Quinny had left his he left a really big job in um, in an environmental company as a biologist. And he was working for the phone company with his father. Um I think it was New England Telephone back then, and he was he was kind of really liking it, you, you know. And, but ultimately, I think it was definitely, with all respect, maybe a little bit below his skill set and his education and all that time he'd put in at WPI. Um, so I think that you know I tried to convince him that he could do something with what he went to school for, and you know really kind of take that to another level and. Um, and maybe that maybe that was what helped, but um, yeah, we were working full time jobs. We I was working in Cambridge. I would leave Cambridge, drive to Westminster, work on the brewery with Kevin and Quinny. They they'd be there. That we'd meet there. Then we'd go our separate ways at you know late late night. I'd go back to Cambridge first thing in the morning, come back to Westminster, and it, that went on for months. It's not easy. And now, can you explain? at all like I guess where you guys's head was at because at that time as you said earlier you guys were the first to do it there was no model to look at and say well so and so is doing it so we could just do what they did and then figure it out or you know do it our own way now that's what everyone else did based on what you guys have done now all these breweries that are popping up around Fitchburg and Clinton and all over they're all based off of you know really the model that you guys you know paved the way for yeah, the, the the little town breweries, um, you know, or, or small city breweries. Yeah, um, there were some examples of breweries that that we were able to model ourselves after. And I would be remiss not to mention um, Steve Mason at Catamount Brewing Company. It's long, long gone, um, but that was up in White White River Junction, Vermont. Uh, Lawrence Miller was the owner of Otter Creek Brewing Company way up in Middlebury, Vermont. Um, he became a friend of ours. Um, we would stop in at Long Trail a lot and talk to them. Um, the owner, the owner back then, wasn't really open to talking to anyone who was starting a brewery, and understandably so. Uh, but some of his crew were, and interestingly, uh, the current uh, the current director of brewing operations or d- director of operations for Wachusett is a 27 year veteran. Um, Matt Quinlan of Long Trail Brewing Company, and we used to visit Matt twenty plus years, twenty, boy, almost thirty years ago. We'd visit with Matt, and he was a young, young employee at Long Trail, and he was willing to, you know, talk to us and support us and help us. But there was another brewer in uh, Brattleboro, Vermont, um, very good friend of our company, uh, Ray McNeil from McNeil's Brewery. He was instrumental in encouraging us to brew. And he was Ray is a like mad scientist, and he offer us all kinds of advice on on our 
what we called our pilot brews because we weren't licensed yet. Um, we were just still advanced homebrewers, and Ray would critique our beers, and he he was just he's just brilliant, um, and it was very helpful. So so there were some out there that would help us. Uh, David Geary, a longtime friend of ours from. Uh, Portland, Maine, and, get, and David's out of the industry now. Most most of them are all out uh, now, but uh, there were some. Fortunately, there were some that that they were out there that we were just we were in awe of them. Um, but we had to travel uh, to see them. <laughs> Far outside of Central Mass, for <laughs> right. sure. Yeah, yeah. But that was all part of the adventure. We'd throw a kayak up on the old Bronco, you know, mountain bikes on the spare tire, and head off. And it was just an incredible time. Um, drinking beer, you know, everywhere we went, listening, learning, and, you know, I, I felt that we were really going to do this way earlier than either of them did. I wanted to, there was something in me back, even when I was at WPI, I, I remember sitting through my lectures senior year and just sitting in the back row thinking, what am I going to do? with this when I get out of here because I don't want to do this. I don't want to design wastewater treatment plants. I don't want to design collection systems for sewers. I figured I'd end up like owning a backhoe and maybe design septic systems, install them myself. That's what I thought I'd do. But then once I got out and was in engineering, all I was doing was looking, looking and looking and looking. And fortunately we were able to follow the passion and, and build a, a brewery. I mean, it's kind of a miracle <laughs> that we made it because <laughs> it was, it was our first beers were, they were not, they were not that good. <laughs> not going to lie. Um, I think they're a lot better now. I <laughs> think a lot of people would, I don't know about what they were like before, but I think a lot of people would agree that they're pretty good now. Well, thank you. Appreciate and that. How did you guys go from being uh, like advanced home brewers going into the commercial space officially? What did that look like as far as licensing and like the actual build out of the brewing? Well, the tough thing there was that we couldn't get funding. I went to several banks with the, what I thought was the best business plan that was ever written and was just getting shot down left and right. <laughs> They're like, no, that can't, that, that's not something that can su succeed in, in Westminster. It's like, well, I don't really understand. And I think the reason why was that there wasn't really, there weren't many breweries uh, yet in mass that were actually packaging their beer and selling it with from distribution. So the models they were looking at were Commonwealth Brewing Company in, in downtown Boston, right near, um, right near the garden. They were looking at Boston Beer Works just outside of Fenway. And, you know, of course, breweries that are doing that, you know, where they're making beer and selling it right on site, you know, which is obviously the most successful equation even currently, um, that that no one thought that could happen in Westminster. But we tried to explain, well, we're, we're going to bring it. We're going to distribute. Um, there was only a couple breweries doing it at the time, uh, one on Ipswich, uh, and we got to know those guys and spent time up there volunteering on Saturdays, helping um, just basically clean. But Quinny was just so passionate about the biology of it, you know, and he just their brewer immediately took to Quinny because he was asking all the questions. He had done fermentation studies at WPI. Um, Kevin with the mechanics, you know, he was helping fix their equipment that was breaking down. 
So we were really an asset um, as volunteers. And um, yeah, the only other brewery that really had had distribution success was Harpoon. Um, but this is all still pretty, pretty early in the game. So the banks didn't know about that. So that was the hardest thing. And we were really fortunate that we were able to be financed by uh, someone right here from Lemonster. Uh, at the time, the bank was Fleet Bank. Uh, Ray LaFond, was, uh, who just finished his tenure with um, Enterprise Bank, um, he was the only one that believed in us. And the reason he said he did, and he stuck his neck out for us, and it's definitely true, was because we had, he called it the hat trick from WPI. And I can say that right now, that's the most powerful thing that I've ever been able to use with my degree because eventually I became a beer engineer. I didn't really follow my career in civil. But the fact that uh, Ray trusted in us and um, got us financing through the SBA, it was that's the, that's the only way we could have ever done it. Without that, it couldn't have ever got off the ground. And we had to use all of our resources. We went to used scrap yards for stainless tanks and we we'd scour through catalogs uh granger is a big giant catalog for industrial supplies and mcmaster car and we designed equipment designed burners for a brew kettle out of that uh, and kevin put it all together and made it work for like the the least amount of money we could possibly build a brewery so that that's that was that was a lot of um, serious creativity. Um, but again, fortunately, there were some people, again, like the breweries up in Vermont, New Hampshire, not even really New Hampshire, just Vermont and Maine, um, that, that did help us when we had questions. Now, I had read, and I don't know if this is accurate or not, that um, you had gotten some friends and family to purchase equipment and you you had like a you they basically financed it for you and you set up a deal with them we did yeah so we did a first round of financing as i said uh, with fleet bank um and ray and uh like cheers to ray <laughs> he's like a you know a commercial lending angel for our company great guy um so yeah we so we ran we burned through that really quickly and what I found that th that was really kind of a messed up situation so the SBA right you know small business administration is they they, they like back these loans um, from private banks so the, pri the you know, private bank really is almost no risk so the SBA backs them with government money but the fees were unbelievable <laughs> and so it's like by the time we got all the fees taken out it was like right this is even close to what we need He's like, yeah, I know. He's like, but there's nothing we can do. He's like, they have to back the loans. So we didn't have enough money to even really open. So that's when we had to decide what, what we're going to do next. And so we went out to friends and family, and uh, some, of, some of them made an investment. Um, believe it or not, my parents was actually one, uh, one, one small group that, that decided they were going to trust in us even after the disappointment of my dad. <laughs> Um, and then a few other local, almost like angel investors with really small amount of money, but, um, desperately needed it. We also found a way in a second round, uh, 
where we did get more financing institutionally, but then capped out at that, but needed more, we were able to figure out a way to um, purchase tanks that at the time were worth a lot of money because the industry was now starting to really explode. It was hard to get tanks. And once you got them, it was like they were valuable. So it was kind of like enough collateral that we convinced more friends and family to buy tanks and then hold title to them. And it was kind of almost against what we were supposed to do with our covenants with the bank. But we were we figured out a, that gray area to just be able to get through and do that. And that was just another way that we were able to get our bottling line up and running in 97 and, uh, you know, all just creative, creative financing. And I think, you know, like one of the biggest things that holds people back, probably like 80% of people just never get started at all. They have this idea, man, it'd be cool to open a brewery and then that's where it ends. And then of those people that do get started, they get that first no or second no. And it's like, I guess it's not going to work. And to end up where you are, you needed to push through all those no's and start to think creatively and, well, how can we make this work? If we can't do it this way, you know, if Bank of America is not going to give us any money, who would give us money? Who believes in us? And who can we sit down with and explain, here's what we're really trying to do. And just because no one around here has done it doesn't mean it's not possible. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the the skepticism was 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 about abounding um it was tough and for a while i remember it, it was really tough especially in 94 when we were building and we were doing it all we didn't have anybody helping us we were doing all of the electric even though we weren't supposed to all the plumbing even though we weren't supposed to it was just like those gray areas where we we had a permit to to build but you know, fortunately, we had actually we had friends that were tradesmen that would back us if we needed them, um, you know, with pulling a permit if we needed. But they knew we were going to do the work because we couldn't afford to pay them. Um, so fortunately, they trusted in Kevin and his electrical ability and his plumbing and, you know, stuff that I, you know, I, I was the, you know, the farm mechanic. That was the last thing we wanted was a farm mechanic in there. But it was enough to help get things done. You know, I, I could grind like nobody's business. You can grind steel. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, it was just continual. Uh, people come through the door and just, just doubt, just continue to doubt. And I was like, after a while, I was like, I don't, I don't have time for this. I don't, have to, I don't have time to listen to this. I said, right now, you know, you could pull out a gun and shoot me in the chest because you're so doubtful of this. And I'd be like, just pissed off because you just slowed us down. I mean, we're not stopping. We're going to do this until, until like, someone comes and locks the doors on us. And, you know, that was what, what it took um, to punch through. And I remember I wrote a sign. I have it at my house. It's in the, it's in, it's in, uh, the barn at October Farm now. It's, I wrote a sign to inspire Kevin and Quinny because we were killing ourselves, you know, sweating copper joints until we could barely even see at night and then have to just grab a couple hours of sleep, go to our jobs, come back, do it again. So I wrote the sign. If you build it, they will drink just with a big Sharpie um, on a big piece of paper. And it, it actually somehow made it through all the years. And it was even up on the wall recently when we opened up the, um, the brew yard. 
um, I dug it out and stuck it up on the wall. Um, but it, we got to that point where that was for the doubters. It was like, read the sign. See you later. We got to get back to work and we don't have time. Um, you know, boy, it was alternative rock and roll and Mountain Dew. <laughs> that's, that's what we used to say the brewery was built on. We could fill a 55-gallon drum of empty Mountain Dew bottles and then take them back for the deposit because we needed the money. And uh, Quinny brought in his PA system from his band. He called it the power. And we would play the music on 11 all night. We couldn't, if we were this close to each other, we couldn't even hear each other. If you were yelling at the top of your lungs. But it didn't matter. It was just like, you could kind of do silent. You know, that that needs to be ground up. That needs to be, I'm going to be, I'm over here doing this. We didn't need to talk. And then um, sometimes the, the uh, police would come in like, what the hell is going on in here? And so we got to become really good friends, especially with the night the night officers, Larry Jupin uh, in particular. And uh, we, we actually named a beer after Larry. Uh, Larry um, was actually um, taken out in the line of duty in Westminster um, back in, uh, it was the late 90s when he got hit and he passed in 2000. Um, so anyone out there who knows Larry, look carefully at the label because there's a shield on it for Larry Jupin. Um, yeah, but so Larry, Larry would come in late at night and be like, you guys are nuts. It's like, yeah. Larry turned out to be one of our best volunteers. As soon as we started our bottling line for three years, he was there helping us label all until about 1030 at night when he had to go home, put on his uniform and go out and do his beat. <laughs> so, yeah, crazy stuff back then. I just volunteers. We needed volunteers to help us run our bottling line from 1997 till 2000 because we couldn't afford to pay the labor. So the way we paid was someone would go to Papa Gino's, pick up six pizzas, and then at the end of the night, any beer that wasn't wasn't quite 12 ounces was called a short fill. We'd, we'd put the labels in upside down on the labeler, label all those upside down, and then they needed to be taken home because they technically didn't exist to the feds. <laughs> so we call them shorties. So it was pizza and shorties and, and rock and roll as loud as you could possibly stand. Um, that's, that's just come on some of those stories about those early days. How, how much did you lean on that friendship with the three of you guys and your vision during that time when you had so many people doubting that you would even get this off the ground? I think that, um, you know, I guess, uh, you know, maybe it goes back to, uh, back to the farm again or something, you know, the, that the work ethic's going to get you through. It's going to get it done. It's going to, you just got to just keep, just going to keep working and working and working. And, um, after we started, yeah, it, it was definitely just had to stay positive somehow, you know? And, um, after we started, so even before, yeah, it was even before we finally uh, turned the corner. And there's, there's so many dimensions to this. We self-distributed our beer for the first several years. 
we can go down that road if, if we have time to even talk about it. But that was a very important thing for us to do. But going back to your point, in 98, we were, we were once again out of money. Excuse me. And um, hazard the job. I think I need another one. Go for it. Yeah. We gotta, All right. Take a quick time no, out. Well, we got a beer guy, so he'll uh, he'll All grab right. it and bring it over to us. You got a beer guy? That's very great. Nice. We, we got, got a bunch now here. at the brewery. So awesome. Thank you very much. This is such a refreshing brew in the middle of the summer here. Boy, what a nice day it was today. Um, yeah. So I'm not sure if I'm like deviating too far from your question, um, but I remember. We're talking about some of the difficulties of getting through, and I remember in in '98, um, I called Quinny and Kev out and said um, I'd like to have a meeting out at the barn at October Farm because we had we had just started bottling only in '97, and unfortunately for us, Boston Beer Company Sam Adams had decided to come out with these things called seasonal brews. And we decided that we needed to have seasonal brews too to be able to compete with them. And the problem was is that we didn't have the money to be able to afford all of the design and all of the plates and the separations they called back then. I don't, I don't think this technology even exists anymore. But all of these things had these huge expenses to each single, every brew that we came out with, including our, our summer um, which is the exact same formula it has been since 1997. Uh, our Oktoberfest, our um, our Quins, and our Winter, all of those beers actually doing those seasonals almost sunk our company. And uh, I remember having the meeting with them, and I told them, I said, I'm, I'm just, I was apologetic. I was like, I wish I could have seen that, but I, I couldn't. And we couldn't get any more money not from the banks, not from any more. There was no more friends and family to go to that had money. And I told them, I said, I, I'm prepared for us to, to tell, to tell Ray, our good friend, our banker friend that, that we're not, we're not going to be able to pull through this unless we, the three of us went to 80 hours a week f with no salary. We were, we were making 25 grand each no salary for the foreseeable future. That's what I told them. And I said, that's the only way I think that we can get through this. And 80 hours is tough. 70 is tough. But this, it's the 70th to the 80th that are toughest. And at that time, Kev came right back into my office um, later that day and said, I'm, I'm, I'm in. And uh, Quinny had to have... A, a conversation with he was married at the time and he had a conversation with his wife and he said I can't be in so we had to try to figure out a way to buy Quinny out when we had no money and then Kevin and I had to go to 80 hours a week so we figured out a way to make Quinny a job offer to get him out of brewing and into sales and then like a, a small miracle happened where we had put up our this is going back to the self-distribution We'd put up a territory for sale um, to get out of the distribution, and it had been shot down by everyone we approached. Someone came through at the at the last minute and said they'll take it. It was a distributor, a beer distributor, Mass, 
and that was just enough to keep us going. It was just like that. 98 was brutal. And it wasn't just us. The late 90s, we lost 50% of the breweries that had opened in mass between 97 and 2000. And we were one of the ones that, that got, got by. It was, uh, it was seriously a small miracle. You know, some, some people might chalk that up to luck, but I mean, I think it's pretty lucky that you had some owners that were willing to work 80 hours a week with no pay to be able to get through that time period. And then you treated people well and things started to fall in line. Yeah. The volunteers were there for everything. Um, we needed volunteers for running our bottling line. It took 10 of them in addition to Kevin and myself. Um, and the way it worked is we'd start at 6 p.m. and go until we were done. And originally in 97, that was sometimes, that was only like till 10 o'clock. But then by 98, it was like 11, 11.30. By 99, it was going to be like way after midnight. And that was tough on volunteers who all had jobs and families. So, um, yeah, it was incredible. The support that we had locally you know, I could sit here for the rest of this uh, conversation and name off names. <laughs> that it's just the the list is huge. Um, and they they not only did that, but we had to we had to do some festivals early on. That was another tool that we used for survival, um, because that retail money was just huge for us. So much more. There's so much more profit in, in selling at retail than selling to our wholesalers or even still we are self-distributing, even that. Um, and all of our festivals need to be staffed by volunteers, friends, and family. And we did it again and again and again until eventually my family was like, Ned, we can't do this anymore. <laughs> this is really hard. And it was true. So we stopped doing festivals for a while I remember we finally were talked into doing one again. And I mean, we took off from 2000 until 2006. I remember in 06, we decided we were going to do one again because they were really fun and they were awesome. And it's great to have, you know, the community come out and have a great time, good bands. And I remember in 06, we decided, all right, we will do it. I said, but the thing is that we're doing this only for charity. And we had been working with this organization in Westminster called Neighbors Helping Neighbors since we opened in 94. And in, so the, our 12th year in working with them, we donated all profits from that event to charity. And it made me actually feel better. And I think it was better for everybody that was working there and working really hard. I was like, okay, <laughs> my family did come back and help. And it's like, all right, but this is all for charity. This isn't for the brewery now. This is for charity. We're able to we're able to stand on our own for this. And uh, so I remember we wrote a check for nine thousand dollars to neighbors helping neighbors. It was the largest donation they'd ever had, I think, at the time. Um, so that was that was that was good stuff. And yeah. I'd like to get some. I, I want to like put a pin in that because I want to talk about some of the other things that you've done for the community, but just so that was, you said, Oh six, right? So would yeah. you be able to give like a bit of an overview of how the business model evolved from like starting out up to there? You know, you talked about the distribution and stuff. That was kind of like a unique way that yeah. you guys did that. Yeah. I can probably do that quickly. <laughs> you don't, have to don't, so. don't feel like you got to rush at all. We have plenty of time. No, yeah. Just... So the, um, yeah, that's, uh, 
so you know you've heard the the infancy to start up which is you know a lot of the story i mean trying to persevere and get through trying to get the money trying to you know finding ways to 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 just even get it off the ground that's that's that was a difficult difficult period um and then there there's definite very fairly kind of straightforward segments after that so 94 so we start we found it in 93 me too what's that i said i was found you were found in 93 hey cheers to that <laughs> good year yeah it was <laughs> 93 yeah yeah we did that we did that ourselves we bought a kit for i think 80 dollars um there wasn't online because there was no online so it was a mail order catalog you could order corporation startup kits and it was just like basically you fill in the blanks with your information you get a corporate stamp and stuff and we still use that corporate stamp the same one today uh it's the only corporate seal we ever had <laughs> all right moving on so so uh, incorporated in 93, started in 94. In 94, we had just enough time to be able to sell two batches of beer before the end of the year. The first one was Country Pale Ale, um, and we sold the entire batch in clear growler bottles. We wanted to have um, brown bottles, but we couldn't get brown bottles. It was clear. That was the only choice. Silk screened. The, the quality of the silk screening was horrible. It was like by the time we even filled them, all the letters were practically falling off. Coney was calling it alphabet soup. It was just, it was a nightmare. But people still bought them. Um, it was actually, it was actually, it was decent. I was actually referring to our other, our pilot brews were not good at all. That was another thing that was discouraging. It was like, well, we weren't making good pilot beer, so how do we expect anyone to support us? But we were like, well, when we have controls in place, we, we know we're going to be able to make it better. Unfortunately, we were able to. Um, so, so we had that batch. We had another batch. Completely, honestly, something went very awry with an outlet tube on our brew kettle. It had a bunch of char on it, and and we didn't know. And we we brought the whole batch out of the kettle, and it picked up this this char flavor, and it went into the tank, the finishing tank. And Cooney gave it to me to taste, and I was like. It tastes like cigarette butts. <laughs> and he's like, no, it doesn't. I was like, Quinny, it does. And he's like, it does. I was like, what are we going to do? We got to sell this batch of beer. And uh, he's like, we got this. So we figured out a way to take a bunch of specialty grains, dark malts and everything, and made this tea and blended it in with this beer to make to, to mask the off flavor. <laughs> I don't think I've ever even talked about this before. Um, so we did it. We added some other special ingredients that I definitely can't talk about. Um, and it was a hit. We changed, we put, we hand labeled these country pale ale growlers, special Christmas ale and sold the whole batch. And it was another time to like help save the company because we needed the cash to buy more grain. Um, anyway, moving forward from that well before you move forward on that it's like you know from a from a business perspective and like as you're growing so quantity wise how much beer was that that was 600 gallons and what do you guys brew now like in a batch or in a month we'll say batch right now is 1200 and we do 50 plus batches a week 
So you make that mistake <laughs> on a small scale mm. that allows you to not make it now that you're brewing a hundred times that a month. And I think that that's valuable as you start to build up is like figuring that stuff out in the bump and go. And like, instead of saying, well, scrap it, toss it, we're going to have to start over. It's like, well, that's not an option. It wasn't an option. So we got to figure something out. We did. Yeah. It's, uh, it's funny that that comes. Yeah, this is, this is really a great experience. I'm so glad to be here because this is, it's kind of fun to look back at this stuff. At the time it wasn't fun. When it sold that, when it sold out, it was fun. But when we were standing there tasting, it was like, oh god. Um, but so that that's '94. That's how '94 ended. We sold out that batch of special special Christmas ale. And then at the end of '94, it was like, all right, '95 starting, and what are we gonna do next? And someone asked me, well, what are you doing for invoices and in your billing? And I was like, I don't know. I hadn't even thought about it. So I decided I better figure that out. So I found a, a catalog that had been sent to us because we incorporated from this company called Nebs. It was out in Groton. And I'm like, I'll just order a book of invoices small enough to fit in my back pocket because I'm going to be the only driver and salesman for this company for the next who knows how long. And so that's what I did. We, uh, we started up the self-distribution. We started out with a Ford F-150 two-wheel drive truck, which was my truck towing a u-haul trailer which isn't really necessarily legal in the commonwealth but at that time i was like whatever um we'd load both of those things up and i'd, I'd head out and try to sell the beer so so here you are driving around in a pickup truck with a u-haul full of beer and yep. it's kind of like once again as some stuff you've alluded to earlier you know maybe it better to ask forgiveness than permission when you're trying to push the envelope a little and and build something. Yeah, you know, back then um, we were we were licensed as a farmer brewer, and fortunately, the license wasn't really that well defined. Uh, we kind of, but we were self distributing, so it was kind of like, well, what are we? We're not really a distributor, so we're not. We don't really necessarily have to live by those rules. And thank God, because we didn't. We just. Those, you know, a distributor needed to have definitive orders um, and invoices for everything, everything on the truck. For us, we would just put everything that we had made in the truck and the trailer and start driving. I called it shotgunning, <laughs> kind of another, yet another beer term. Um, and it was like, I'm not going to come back here until I have sold everything. And we don't necessarily know that it wasn't legal back then, um, but we don't necessarily know that it was legal. So anyway, yeah, that's that was just one more of those things. Is like, all right, well, um, you know, the ABCC has all the right to come figure it out. And if they figure it out and they tell us, no, you're not supposed to do that, I guess we would ask, well, where does it say that we can't? And they always said, uh, well, I guess it was always said by the lawyers, well, if, if it's not... It's written that it's allowed, then it's not allowed. So I, I don't know. That doesn't make too much sense to me. Sometimes the gray area is good to <laughs> operate in. Oh, we've operated in a lot of gray. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so it's kind of like things accelerated quickly from that point. We did the self-distribution. We sold the rights in 1998 uh, to a chunk of the state 
to a to an established Massachusetts distributor, and that that kept us going. And then we we really dug deep. We had three trucks running at that time. Quinny was out as our sales manager, full bore. So we had a founder um, out in the trade, pouring his heart into it. We had uh, some other great great team members. Each one would drive a truck and sell at the same time, just like the way I started out in 94, 95. And um, we put a serious hurting on Sam Adams. And that's handled by Atlas Distributing out of Auburn. So that was our prime target. I mean, Sam Adams and Boston Beer and Jim Cook, who has you know, become a friend over the years, of course, uh, they were the best the best at marketing. Jim Cook is a brilliant, brilliant marketeer. Um, I, I owe tremendous respect to him. And I, I, I said for, for the longest time, the only reason Wachusett was able to exist is because Jim Cook told the American public, you can try something different. Don't be afraid. It has a lot of flavor. It's okay. You can try it. And then when people tried it, they were like, wow, this does have a lot of flavor and it's really pretty good. So, you know, thanks to Jim and, you know, what, what Boston Beer did. But nonetheless, in Central Mass, it was like, this isn't Boston, this is Central Mass. They had two or three draft lines almost at every restaurant. I was like, well, why, why does that have to be? We don't have any right now. Or, you know, maybe we, we had country in there. We hadn't even invented blueberry yet. So we went after those multiple Sam lines and we're very effective at it. And that's when Atlas really started to talk to us. Uh, Joe Solis from Atlas Distributing, he had, he had come to the brewery personally before he even opened, expressing his interest in working with us. I told him at the time, we don't know this industry at all. We don't know the brewing industry and we don't know the beer business. We need to learn those both. And then maybe we can talk because we, I felt like we needed to meet people and, and tell them who we were and establish ourselves out there. So that, that, that strategy, I guess, I guess it paid off. Um, so, so that was from 98 to 2000. And by then, it started to become difficult to run the two companies. I mean, we were running two companies. We were running a, a, a brewery and a beer distributorship. And we decided we had to make a choice and we chose, well, there was not really a choice. We had to be, we had to focus on brewing. And so almost five years to the day that we opened, I called Joe Solois, left a voicemail. He called me back two minutes later and said, Ned, I will meet you anywhere you want, anytime we want your brand. I was like, that's what we wanted in a wholesaler to, to know that they cared enough and they, they knew that there was an opportunity for them and for us. And so Joe and I met and, um, that was 2000 and we are with them today. Um, Atlas is our, our partner in central mass. Uh, we have the best relationship and we, we, all of our people know all of their people, uh, we work. We've worked as a team for for this many years now. It's um, it's it's great. And so, 
that that's been our focus and has been and i think that's what's absolutely critical is that we focused originally doing it ourselves as locally as possible and then now with atlas nothing has changed our commitment to central mass and, and working with Alice. That's so that's representative of 22 years of business. And the only thing that's really changed in that was in 06, we went to our first state outside of Massachusetts because I was convinced by another wholesaler we were working with, the other one that we had sold to in 98, I was convinced that that, that would work. And we went to the state of New York and I was hep- I was um, skeptical and said uh, it's not going to be the same, and, and it really wasn't the same. It's not the same when when there's breweries that had already been established in New York that are making really good pale ale and making great IPA. There was five blueberry beers being made in in New York in '06, but we got convinced to go there, and, and it was a nice boost to business. And then followed suit with other states, um, Rhode Island in '08. Um, and then, you know, eventually New Hampshire, Vermont, uh, Connecticut, and that's really been it for the Wachusett brand. But what the, the Wachusett brand has been 85% of our volume, maybe dipped down to 80% mass. It's been Massachusetts. Massachusetts is what we did. It's what Kevin Quinney and I set out to do was be local and, and, and sell it here. People used to tell me when I was young, uh, young in the industry, you're going to be the next Sam Adams. And I said, we don't want, we don't want to be the next Sam Adams. I don't want to be Jim Cook. I don't want to sell our beer in Hawaii. We don't, we don't, that's not what we set out to do. We're, we're, we're central mass guys. We, we want to do it here. So nothing really changed that much. You know, we picked up the distribution in the other States and, and it's been great. And we still have great relationships in those States um, with our wholesalers and the biggest change happened in, um, well, it started to happen in about 2012 when I was looking at it, thinking that we're going to eventually have to open something, some type of a restaurant or on-premise thing. And everyone in the company that had been with us from the beginning or throughout it all, they knew of anyone as a founder and, um, as even the the the, the really the um, the remaining um, founder in 2012, that's the last thing in the world I wanted to do. I'm an engineer. I like doing tours. I loved having people come. I loved having a retail store, but I didn't want to get in the business because, from what I saw when I started out, how difficult the industry is, how much respect I have for those in the on-premise business. I didn't feel like we really. We should be part of it. And I also didn't want us to be a competitor with those that had supported us since 1994, especially in, in the town of Westminster, Fitchburg, Lemister, Gardner. It's like, I don't want to take away from their businesses. So it, it was 2012 when we really started looking at that, and we had to change laws for us because we had a special license at that point that almost no one else in the state had. And we had to work with our local senator, local representative that was Jennifer Flanagan and Kim Ferguson and they helped us tremendously negotiate these through a couple of different law changes to get to the place where we would be able to do it with our license structure and um, and it took all the way until 
the end of 2017 to get there. And we were finally op- able to open the Wachusett Brew Yard in 2017. And that was the most significant change that we had had since 2000 going, getting out of self-distribution. Um, <clears throat> I don't regret it. <laughs> it's definitely a whole new dimension. Um, I do think that uh, fortunately the, the, the people that we've had at Wachusett helping in that division did have done such an amazing job um, of, of building something that is welcoming to the community. We did it in a different way. Um, I went around personally to all the restaurants in Fitchburg, Lemister, Gardner, in Westminster in 17 and told everyone what we we're going to do. We, I wouldn't allow us to, uh, I wouldn't allow us to buy or build a restaurant itself or build a kitchen. I was very specific that, oh, country pale hell. The original, thank you, beer man. This is great. My favorite since the beginning. Oh, and that's our barn right there. That's the October Farm barn right on the label. <clears throat> Uh, this one, uh, this one, we brewed uh, like thirty or forty batches of this before we ever ever came out with this, our, our first beer. Sorry for the interruption. No interruption. Um, <laughs> so it's oh, so good. So, um, and yeah. Anyway, so you know, we we were we, we opened it up, we the brew yard and. Um, did it under under the what an engineer wanted. I wanted to, I wanted us to have, I wanted us to have food trailers essentially and be like, if you want food, we're a brewery. You're welcome here. We love having you here, but we're not gonna serve you at your table. If you want food, we're gonna ask that you go up there and order it. We're gonna ask that you go and pick it up. Um, if you want to have table service, then go to one of our great supporting restaurants. Has been with with us like the old mill since 1994. Um, if you want table service, go there. If you want to hang out here, drink beer, listen to music, um, it's a little more uh, self, self-involved self or, you know, it's a little more participation-oriented. Um, and that's something that I had seen in California when I was buying some equipment early on. And I was like, wow, I went to a barbecue restaurant and saw this incredible place and no one had a problem going up placing an order getting a a, you know a vibrating disc and going back to their seat and when the thing went off they went and picked up their food it's like that's we could do that don't want to be table service don't ever want to be table service don't want to take away from those that work that whole program which is so much more difficult um you know so we did set ourselves aside, you know, aside by doing that, and it wasn't until this past year, 2021, we finally were able. We had to build a uh, a, a kitchen, but it's still on axles. It's still movable, and it's still not permanent. Um, and that's because that's just the way I wanted it to be. I didn't want it to be built in the building. We're we're not. We're still not a restaurant. We're a brewery that serves food. Our food quality, in my opinion, has gone through the roof. It's the best we've ever had. We've brought on a whole um, barbecue menu. 
in our team. Um, we have a father-son team, uh, Jamie and Gary Roy. They're just doing an incredible job. They built a barbecue program, and the stuff is incredible, and I'm proud of it. But you still have to kind of order on your phone. That's all. That's a COVID thing, and um, and well, we do bring the food to you, but you're still using plastic utensils, and it's it's uh, it's simple stuff. You know, it's kind of like being at a picnic more than a restaurant, and I'm totally cool with that. And I hope that we never really change that. And I'm glad that the community appreciates it and they should still go to the local restaurants because they are very critical to our region also you know and i don't ever want to see business taken away from them i like to think that now that we're bigger and we have all this outdoor seating everything people are coming out to our area to see us hopefully they'll stop in there and maybe they'll drink a couple beers at our place and then go up and have dinner up at the blueprint in center town or um, the colonial inn or the old mill maybe go down to Slattery's, any of the local businesses. If, we, if we're, I like to think that we're contributing to business for everybody now you know, by doing this. What's it like to look back, you know, and think of Westminster, kind of the middle of nowhere, and that first sign that you drew out if you build it and then see what you've gone on to build? Well, it's pretty wild. I mean, I mentioned earlier that I um, – I started flying last year on a powered parachute and I've had a couple times recently to be able to fly over the brewery and to go to fly over the brewery on a Saturday or a Sunday when the field across the street, which we lease from the town and thank goodness the town has been so amazing to us. Um, see that full of cars and then people everywhere in the grounds and then the, all the tanks and um, it's, it's beyond gratifying. It's uh, it's it's amazing to to see, you know that that level of you know construction and I mean that that the thing is now considered like a a campus. It kind of sprawls out over like six acres and there's seven hundred seats, um, and people are out there. There's bands playing. It's uh, it's really awesome. It's, it's so never could have expected that. I did expect us to be a, a big, uh, not big, but a, a, a strong distributing local brewery when we set out. That's what our business plan was written as. And, but, but the adding the uh, on-premise dimension is, has been, it's just, just been tremendous. And then when we opened um, in 2020, in Worcester, uh, the Worcester Brew Yard, that that's a whole nother dimension as well. So that's that's a that's a beast of its own. And um, you know, having Polar Park come in, uh, yeah, it's it's a whole new dimension for us. And um, I'm just I'm I'm really happy that the Commonwealth of Massachusetts allows us to do this through our license structure, which we did have to modify, um, but. It's, there's there's so many more things we still want to implement that it's just going to make it better and better. We actually have a distilled spirits plant license with the federal government now. So we are actually allowed now. Oh, we have one with the state as well. So we are actually allowed right now to, um, to distill. So we plan on uh, eventually or, you know, as soon as we can, if there's not too many other things going on, like 
pandemics and stuff, we're going to uh, crank up our little still and start making our own vodkas and uh, some other things. So there's there's plenty more to come. Um, That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And something that sticks with me and I'd like maybe for you to talk a little bit about is a s- slogan that you guys have had really from the beginning is like enjoy with friends. Yeah. Enjoy with friends. That's, um, it's kind of, that goes back to the early branding. Uh, I mean, Kevin Quinney and I were not brand, we, we had no branding experience, no marketing experience. We didn't have any accounting experience. We didn't have any business experience. We didn't have any experience. We just wanted to, to build a brewery and it was the three friends and it's almost similar to like sitting on my the, the porch of my parents' house looking at this red barn, this uh, maple tree in Wachusett Mountain. And Quinny's saying, I'm like, well, what are we going to use for a logo? It's like, why don't we use that? And I was like, okay, check. And then, okay, I, I don't know. It's like, did we really have to have some type of tagline? Um, no, probably not. But someone said it. And this is way early on because we had it on our first growlers and that was it. Um, it was like, this is like kind of, it, it, it is, it's a, it's a, it's the definition and it's a true moniker of, of these, these three guys and these three friends that, you know, kind of, kind of stood up to the odds and defeated them all. And, uh, uh, and I'm really proud of that we chose that as an expression because no one else has, you know, and well, like, maybe they couldn't, but I don't think we ever trademarked it or anything. No competitors take yeah, it. Don't, uh, <laughs> no, nobody out there take it tomorrow now. Tomorrow morning. No. Yeah. We, yeah. Do you hear that compliance? Let's get on that. <laughs> um, the compliance manager is my wife, by the way. <laughs> She's been with us for 12 years doing it. Our in-house lawyer. So, uh, yeah, I'll be calling you, honey, just in a little bit. Make sure we get that trademarked. Um, but yeah, enjoy with friends. Um, proud to have that on there. You know. Well, I think it kind of defines your brand and where you've come from and what you do. And I'm sure millions of other times of enjoying the beer with other friends of people that you don't know and never met, but. They can think of you when they do get to do that. I think there's been there's been millions of times, and there has. I probably have had millions of times and experiences myself. <laughs> now, I you know I know you got a lot going on. I, one more question I wanted to ask you is, you know, everything you've done, where where you started from, the you know the dip in the '90s where so many brewers went out of business, and all the trials and tribulations you've gone through. What's the difference between you guys and watch you sit and you know, everyone else out there. Hmm. <clears throat> well, um, I think that I have to say that we've touched on, a, on several things here during this conversation that are the culmination of that. Um, there's the adversity that we faced from not having enough money having to self-distribute because we didn't know what we were doing and needed to learn the industry, having to diversify constantly, change, um, resist change when I didn't think it was right or we didn't think it was right, 
like we never made extreme beer extreme uh it just didn't seem like what we wanted to do we wanted to make you know local drinkable craft beer like country and 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 summer and so you know making those decisions to not go full bore into making all our beers have too many hops you know those those are like they're kind of like both manufacturing and marketing decisions but and I guess I'd have to say that, you know, it was, it was early on, um, just uh, the perseverance and, and the work ethic goes back to, you know, how we started this conversation. You know, myself growing up on the farm, Kevin, Quinny, they had the same work ethic. Kev, both very hard workers, um, didn't, you know, the resiliency. Uh, Quinny, when he first got out in the trade, I remember him, you know, being a biologist, not a salesman, he was a showman as, a, as an entertainer. But um, I remember one of the quotes he had, it was, I'll never forget as long as I live. Uh, his, he was so resilient. He would go into accounts. There was one particular account in Milford. He'd go there and the owner couldn't stand him for some reason. Don't know why. He, he tried to figure out why, but he couldn't figure it out. But he'd go there and get basically kicked out week after week after week. And, and he just couldn't get the beer in there. And, and then one day the guy said to him, all right, I'll try it. And he tried it. He took one sip of a bottle and he said, this tastes like shit. And Coney said, no doubt, my man, but it sells two kegs a week right down the street. And he's like, fuck it, send me two kegs. <laughs> I mean, he went there again and again. That's that's just just one little factor is that, you know, to, for someone to do that. I mean, it's like I have so much respect for that because who would do that? You know, be told to go get out, get out. I don't want to buy your beer and still keep going. Who would do that? Uh, so just a combination of the, the, the strengths of three guys that just we had different strengths. Um, that all work together, you know, and it continues on now during COVID, man, I'd never seen such, uh, incredible efforts by a team. You know, we, we had been up and operating since 17 and all of a sudden we we're just getting everything going good with our on-premise and bam, we're shut down, shut down, mandated. Everyone was, wow, that has become a very important revenue stream. What are we going to do? So just start thinking, think, think, think. I remembered that we had, we have a very unique license structure that no one else had in the state at the time. We actually have a license for our, our off-premise sales, meaning we actually have, as known in Massachusetts, a package store in the building that looks like it's part of us, but it's not. It's actually a separate license. And package stores in Massachusetts are allowed to deliver beer. It's not commonly known. It's not commonly practiced, but some stores do it, and they do it very successfully. It's like, well, we're now allowed, we're allowed to deliver food. We were the first brewery in the state during COVID to be able to, to deliver beer with our food. And as soon as we put that out there, it went crazy. Um and 
then we, within one day, we get a call from the ABCC. They called Kim, and uh, they asked her, and it was the, the investigator that you know deals with us all the time. I said, Kim, how can you do this? And she said, we have a Section 15 along bolted onto our Section 19, and you know that the Section 15 is allowed to do that. And he said, okay, that's all I needed to know. But then we heard from the rest of the brewers in the state, and they were all upset that we were able to do that. I was like, well, if you look at our license structure, we pay tens of thousands in license structure and license fees over the year where most breweries pay very, very little, you know, which is great, great for them. But we did that purposefully, and this goes back to uh, Kim Ferguson, Jen Flanagan, um, Brian Zlotnick helping us get, get the law changes to be able to be really diversified. So diversification, I guess, I don't know, just a combination of a whole bunch of things allowed us to survive. Well, I mean, I, you know, I want to thank you, creativity. Thank you for your creativity. Thank you for never giving up on your dream. Thank you for not compromising when other people wanted you to do it a different way. And thank you for coming down here to tell this story because this has really been an amazing experience for me. <laughs> well, it's been great for me too. I really appreciate being invited in. Um, it's always fun to to look, to look back, um, and and I'm just I'm I'm really proud of uh, of what it, everybody at what you said has done. Um, there's so many families that have um, succeeded and and done well and and benefited from from everyone in Central Mass buying our beer. It wasn't people buying out of the state. We would have gone out of business if we relied on that. So we're, we're just really fortunate that we've had that kind of support locally. And if anyone ever watches, looks back, there's there's some video of me at our 25th anniversary, and I went up there on stage, and it just came right out of my heart. It was like, thank you, everyone who's local, because you're the reason we exist. And uh, everyone local is why we will continue to exist and, and succeed. So... This has been awesome. Thanks. I think we need a toast. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for tuning in with us. We do this to share the stories of some of the incredible individuals in your community. All we ask in return is if you found value from this episode, please share it with someone else who may also gain value from the show. Please feel free to rate or review the show. Your feedback helps us give you more of what you want. Until next time, I'm Tim Lanza, and this was another Local Legacy. Legacy.